Does he sit second, man? No, I don't I think he does. I think Kevin Keegan probably sits second. Oh, God, <laughs> what a scandal. Austin Eckler versus the cards. Go and fuck the lot of you. <laughs> I think Tom Naylor's going to be the nailed-on holder midfielder, so it's just who goes... Unbelievable. He's not even realised he's Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Loaded Sport. We are back one week only with two episodes in a week. The main reason being that this upcoming weekend, the return of domestic football in the UK is here. And later in the week for our usual Friday release, it will be a full house of us lads for the first time ever in Loaded Sport history, breaking down our predictions for the season ahead from the Premier League down to the National League, including cup competitions and the Champions League as well. So please make sure you join us on Friday and also through our social media channels or even while you're watching the video on YouTube, drop your comments and thoughts and your own predictions as well. Joining me tonight to cover all other business outside of football are two lads that are going to have very good input <coughs> Excuse me, in the sports that we will be covering. First of all, later on in the show, Aggie, you will be joining me to discuss the Belgian Grand Prix, and also some thoughts and predictions for the second half of the season as we are now in the summer break. How are you, my friend? I'm good, mate. Thank you. Uh, good to see a bit of a break and finally a couple of weeks where Max Verstappen isn't going to win a race. I think it's going to be the longest streak without him winning, isn't it? Yes, yeah, uh, it's a bit bad that when the only way we're confident that that's going to be happening is that there's no races taking place at all. But maybe, just maybe, you'll have a bolder prediction or two for us later on when we discuss the second half of the season. And certainly the man who is raring to go for this episode to get stuck into what was an action-packed weekend in the combat world. He was very excited during this preview, and now we are at the time to review it. And Kemp, I hope it lived up to the hype that uh, you were hoping for and the potential. How are you and how was your weekend? Well, Mr Dawson, man with a mic, I'm tired after a weekend of fights that absolutely blew my socks off. And uh, and if I had a head of hair before this weekend, it would all be completely gone by now because that was an absolutely ridiculous week- weekend in combat sports. But I'm sure we will get to that in KP's Combat Corner. I'm good, thank you, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, mate. Thank you. It was a bit weird getting set up on a, a Monday evening, peek behind the curtain, as you always say. it's uh, It's been a long while, hasn't it, since we've recorded at this time of the week. But it's good to see you. Sam will be back. Uh, later on in the week to go through the football, but Kent, you said it yourself, mate, it blew your socks off. You're still adjusting to uh, the absolute killer sleep schedule that it puts you on a big fight weekend, but get stuck into it, mate. Talk us through Kempi's Combat Corner and what went off this weekend. Yeah, and you say they're still adjusting. I'm still adjusting to the fact that we live in a world where Terence Crawford absolutely destroyed and dismantled Errol Spence within nine rounds. I, I didn't see it coming. The vast majority of the boxing public and fans didn't see it coming. But that's exactly what happened. And in combat sports, expect the unexpected. Uh, I didn't expect that to happen. And and it happened. Um, I have rewatched watched the fight, so I wasn't imagining it at the time. Um, it was a little bit difficult because you've got Errol Spence, Terence Crawford on one screen, and then Alex Pereira against Jan Blachowicz on another screen. So we just had to kind of make do. Uh, but but to be fair with how entertaining and exciting the boxing was, um, that that was the one that the vast majority of combat sports fans were probably being drawn to. Uh, it started pretty well for Errol Spence, to be fair. They're coming into the fight. Um, Terence Crawford was walked to the ring by Eminem, which was a nice little touch. Also from De- you know, probably Detroit's other favourite son. Uh, but, but yeah, um, Terence Crawford and Errol Spence walked to the ring. It was very, very 50-50. I mean, we discussed this in the preview show that they'd called each other and set up the fight. You know, it was Spence Crawford, but then Crawford walked... Um, 
second or uh, first, I think, yeah, Crawford walked first, which is not something that you normally do. It was pretty much 50-50. There was no A side, there was no B side. It was really, really even and fantastic promotion. And they presented both fighters very, very evenly as well, which I'd like to see him do a little bit more in boxing. But you can't have everything. And uh, But what we did have was was a, a pretty decent start by Errol Spence. Um, he, he looked as though he was getting warmed up into the fight. He looked as though he was feeling a little bit comfortable. Um, he didn't do too much damage. He didn't too, do too much to, to kind of knock Crawford off his stride, but he looked comfortable. And I thought it was the type of chess match that we were going to see throughout the entire um, event. Unfortunately, for, for Errol Spence, that is, that that, that didn't happen. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Third round, I believe it was, um, Terence Crawford knocked Errol Spence to the canvas. Um, it, it, it sort of started, it was the beginning of the end. It might sound ridiculous because he finished him in the ninth round, but... You know, in the second round, third round, um, he really set the groundwork for what was to come. Um, just simple, smart, just standard boxing. Nothing that knocked your socks off, but the timing, the accuracy, the power was just perfect. Crawford is 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 known for going through the gears. He's known for being a real switched on, powerful, but also controlled fighter. And his experience showed. He is 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 quality showed throughout the entire fight and um, he knows Errol Spence likes to get in tight you know I mentioned it on the preview if Errol Spence can get in tight and turn it into a bit of a war then who knows what was going to happen and I think that was Errol Spence's chance to win the fight but Terence Crawford didn't, didn't let it happen and Errol Spence was coming on he was coming on strong he was throwing getting down really low and throwing looping shots at times which is very very unlike Errol Spence but Terence Crawford was so good he was getting him out of his rhythm and that's exactly what he did he was he was lunging in, he was overcommitting, and Terence Crawford was punishing him. He's got the most, one of the most punishing jabs I've seen in boxing for a long, long time. And following it with the with the with the straight left the backhand, the straight right the backhand, um, straight left the backhand southpaw. Uh, it was a it was a bad night for Errol Spence, but an unbelievable night for Terence Crawford from from pretty much round two onwards. Um, again, Errol Spence is the type of fighter that likes to go through the gears and can deal some really you know big punishment. Um, but Terence Crawford didn't let it happen. He just he just didn't let it affect him at all. He just he had a game plan. He stuck to it. He, he stayed in the outside of his range. He, he used his footwork. He what he was in. He was out. He was he was jabbing Spence. He was catching him off guard, catching him off balance. And, and, and honestly, like I say, I, I I didn't see it coming. And and very very few people, very few fight fans, I'm sure, actually did see it coming. Um, again, it started okay. It started okay. It was round. Two. It was round two actually where uh, Errol Spence went down, and and after that it was just again domination from start to finish, and it was really really strange to see that because we got this fight and it was being built up like a nip and tuck fight. I mentioned I compared it to Pacquiao Mayweather, and in the build up a lot of people were talking about that. You know, it's going to be a nip and tuck fight. It's going to be really close. It's going to be a technical masterclass. It's going to be a potential close decision. I had a few people who said that Terence Crawford would stop it, but not in the not in the way that that he did. Um, again, round three, um, Spence landed a couple of good shots, but then Crawford took over, and that's what you tended to find. Spence would have moments, very, very brief moments, but then Crawford's speed, like I say, his size, his quality, it just took over completely. And, um, and yeah, he just had success again and again and again. Um, in round six, I think it was, or round seven, um, yeah, Crawford knocked Spence down again, um, dominating the fight once again. One thing you can say about Errol Spence is that he showed unbelievable heart in the fight 
um, and not a lot of people expected him to, 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 to still be there when he was. But unfortunately, round nine, um, Terence Crawford didn't get impatient. He didn't, you know, uh, overreach. He didn't try and panic and get him out of there as quick as he could. He stayed relaxed, stayed composed. He knew Errol Spence needed to chase the fight. Errol Spence went there to win. He didn't go there to lose a, a points decision. Um, and he had to make he had to make adjustments and he had to make sacrifices and he had to go for it. Um, you saw him, like I say, lunging in and doing very unlike Errol Spence things. Um, and Terence Crawford punished him for it and, and finished the fight. And I think it was a very, very good stoppage of very well timed. So, oh, who knows? Harold Spence, Terence Crawford, what an unbelievable fight it was. There is a rematch clause. There's not that many people that want to see it. I don't want to see it personally. Terence Crawford is talking about moving up to um, super, super, well, light middleweight, I suppose it would be. 154 pounds, I think it is. Um, and, and he's going to, uh, I suppose, maybe fight Jamel Charlo for the undisputed belts at that, that level. But, you know, you look at Terence Crawford now, three-weight world champion, undisputed champion in two different weight classes, and he has to go down there as one of the greatest welterweights of all time. Dawson, I know you probably didn't stay up and watch the fight. He's not as much of a maniac as I am when it comes to combat sports. But what a, what a surprise that was to see that it really wasn't competitive at all. Yeah, and I've, I've got a question for you off the back of what you've just said there. You mentioned the rematch clause that was in place and that you had... Um, no interest in seeing that and from what you can see not a lot of other people do either so just a very quick part a and then i'll get into the main b but is one of the reasons why you're not bothered about seeing that because of how the first fight went down yeah 100 percent. like there were a lot of so errol spence in the last couple of years he had a, a really serious car crash which i don't know if you've seen um no. he, he had a pretty serious injury a detached retina as well which is the the injury that michael bisping had that ultimately led him to losing his eye um so you know, serious, serious issues in the last couple of years. But, you know, he's a boxer, he's, he's a champion and, and he wanted to come back and, and you know, face the best fighters in the world. Terence Crawford certainly is that. No excuses from Errol Spence after the fight as well. He came out and he said, listen, he was the better man. He beat me fair and square and it is what it is. And, you know, he, he couldn't really say anything different. But I just wonder whether the rounds, the weight, because he's always been very, very tight at the weight as Errol Spence. He's always struggled to make the weight. So I wonder whether... The issues in the past couple of years, the weight and, and, and all these issues have kind of built up. And when he's fought somebody like Terence Crawford, um, they've really sort of come to the fore, really, because, like I say, don't want to see it again because it just wasn't competitive whatsoever. So what's the point? OK, so point B, then let's apply this to a team sport. Let's go football and NFL. They're sort of the, the two main sports that we're, we're all into as a, as a collective football two top teams you see them fight or you know Champions League final let's say for example or a World Cup final on the day in that game those two teams or one of those teams or one of the star players might not turn up and it might not be the occasion or the kind of game that you hoped it could be or had the potential to be but if that game comes around that time next year it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to be excited because those teams will prepare differently and you know everything like that NFL Super Bowl matchup, two biggest teams in the league that year. Really excited for that matchup, and it doesn't quite live up to the occasion again because one team just isn't at the races. One team just totally outperforms that team, whatever it may be. But if that comes around the next season, you're still going to be excited because of the potential that it could deliver. Why do you think it's different in boxing, where in this last week and these last few months, everyone has been so excited about this fight? because of the fighters involved, because we don't often see it in this day and age in boxing where two generational talents at a weight class face off. Why do you think that's now different just based off of one result instead of that? If it does happen again, right, Spence could come in with a different mindset. It could go different. He's going to come with a different game plan. We could get the 
the fight that we were expecting the first time around. Why do you think it's different for this? Because combat sports is different than that. Combat sports is different to the, those examples you've given. And I understand why you've given them because they're probably sports that a lot of our listeners could probably relate to rather than boxing MMA if you, are, if you aren't combat sports fans. But very, very seldom, very rarely do we see a performance like that and then anything different come of it. The only thing I can really think of, and it's different because it's heavyweight and it's that sort of game-changing power, is when Tyson Fury beat Deontay Wilder in their second fight and then the sport of arbitration ordered that third fight to happen. It happened and Wilder put Fury on his arse a couple of times, but the difference is, is they're heavyweights and one punch can change it all. I think if Terence Crawford would have stopped Errol Spence in the ninth round with an unbelievable shot from the gods, I think I'd be really interested in seeing it. I think it was nip and tuck and really even up to that point, regardless of whether you know it was a TKO or points or whatever, if it was nip and tuck and if it was really close up to that point and then Crawford just found a, a, a hell punch and put Spence out with it, then I'd be like, oh, wow, you know, it was really close up until that point. I wonder what happens next time. The difference in skill between the two on the night was fucking mental. It was literally like watching a pro boxer fight somebody that's never fought before. That's how that's how big the, the gap was. Crawford did whatever the fuck he wanted. He, he could have ended that fight. He could have stopped that fight numerous times, but he stayed patient. He stayed disciplined. And Errol Spence didn't have a fucking clue. He did not know what to do with him. And that's, again, we boxing fans thought that this was going to be Terence Crawford's stiffest test and, and the most competitive fight in, in boxing in, 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 in the game for, for years and years. And Crawford just absolutely beat the brakes off him from, like I say, round two onwards. So the reason that it's not compelling, the reason that it's different to the NFL is because if, let's say, the Giants and the Patriots are in a Super Bowl and then the Patriots win and they batter the Giants, but then in two years' time, they get both get there again and everybody's excited because it's like, oh, can the Giants get redemption? The problem is, is that boxing's a very different sport in the sense that fights are made instead of mandated. If that, Does that make sense? If the Giants win the, the NFC and the Patriots win the AFC, they have to face each other. They can't decide on whether to face each other or not. If Crawford and Spence have a rematch, in my opinion, it doesn't sell very well. Not many people pay a lot of money to go and see it. And boxing is the fight business. That's what it is. It's the fight business. And if they put that fight on again, it wouldn't have the same build. It wouldn't have the same buzz. And ultimately, it wouldn't make the same money because we've already seen that Terence Crawford is just a cut above, mate. That's fair. That's fair. I just wondered, again, not being as uh, into the sport as you, it's just, I, sp- I suppose it's it's quite surprising in the space of, I mean, what, four days since we, we recorded the, the episode 59? That all that excitement is now kind of oh, I'm not really interested in seeing it again. So, like I say, more likely down to the, the result. Um, but yeah, as long as it that's a fight business, and it, and it depends. It's fight on fight. You know, I'm going to talk about UFC 291 in a second, and it was a Gaethje versus Poirier in the main event. And again, we'll talk about that. But those two guys, they could fight each other ten times. They probably have a different winner every time, and every single time it'd be entertaining. They're really, really close. They're like a clone of each other in a way. They're so close in terms of skill set. But that's why it's compelling because we don't, you know, oh, who's going to win this time? Who's going to win that time? <laughs> Crawford and Spence announce a rematch tomorrow. <laughs> I can't see one person who's ever watched boxing would watch that fight and think there's going to be a different result. Not one. So that's the reason, mate. And I understand why you say what you say, but but it's just if you watch the fight and you see the difference in skill, 
it's it's absolutely evident. I, I touched on it there for a second. UFC 291 was the other big event on the weekend. It happened simultaneously with Crawford and Errol Spence, so it was quite difficult, like I said earlier, to keep your eye on, on events unfolding at Salt Lake City, but um, we managed it. We managed it, and, and what a card it was, top to bottom. It was disappointing that Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and Michelle Pereira's fight fell out. Um, Pereira missed weight and Wonderboy uh, wouldn't accept the fight with Pereira weighing 173 when the weight limit was 171. But that's that's Stephen Wonderboy Thompson's prerogative and I understand why he did it. It's an inherently dangerous sport. And if you've got somebody that weighs in two or three pounds heavier than you, man, I'll sound like a lot to the layman, but that is a lot in terms of what, what you step on the scales at in terms of hydration, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand that why that didn't happen. And just before we do move on to the other action on the night that actually did take place, Dawson, any thoughts on that? I've got a question for you, mate. So, um, yeah, and again, this is me being naive, but for the sake of conversation and content and education for me, most of all, and maybe one or two other listeners, but I did see a picture. I want to say Pereira, and I might be completely wrong with that, but it was basically a picture of him at the weigh-in and then, like, the next day where he put on about 22 pounds, I think it was. Um, I don't so it was it. Pereira. Right. But, the, but a different Pereira. So, um, okay. Stephen Wonderboy Thompson was meant to be fighting um, Michelle Pereira. Both really interesting strikers, got really unorthodox ways of striking. and like, There's no ground game in that at all. Might as well be having a kickboxing match. Um, Michelle Pereira missed weight by two pounds. Yeah. So he got on the scales, missed weight, and the UFC said to Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, um, we're going to take some of his purse off him if you want to still fight him. So he gets 30% of his purse knocked off and given to you because he missed weight, but the fight's still there. And Wonderboy said, nope. No, nope, not doing it, not not risking it, whatever it might be. Um, the Pereira you're talking about is Alex Poetan Pereira, who fought yeah. in the co-main event, former middleweight champion of the world, moving up to light heavyweight to fight against Jan Blahovic. Okay, so still I can still use that as a point, so that's fine. So he's put on like 22 pounds in between the weigh-in and the fight, and you said there that you know fighters don't want to take on or, or are worried about that extra weight, and that's probably the reason why he turned the fight down. But if fighters are putting on that amount of weight in between the weigh-in and the fight, why does it matter if when they get in the cage they're not the fight, they're not the weight that they are at the weigh-in anyway? Yeah, and I mean I'm I'm surmising um, as to why Wonderboy didn't take the fight. I'm not 100 sure on why Stephen Thompson Wonderboy uh, didn't take the fight, but again I'm surmising that that is the reason. Um, it matters because. It's, it's it's about rehydration. So, as you mentioned there, Alex Pereira cut down to 205 and then I think got into the cage at about 230-something or 228 or something like that, around 230 pounds. So, put a lot of weight back on when he got into the cage. Um, and again, you, you say, oh, well, they weigh so much after they've weighed in anyway. What's the point? What's the difference? The difference is, is that Alex Pereira will have had to rehydrate back up to that weight. He had to get on the scales at 186 or lower, uh, 206 or lower. That's what he did. And he had to do that. And then after that, rehydrated back up to the weight. Jan Blahovic also did that, got down to 206, and then will have rehydrated after the after the weigh-in. So the difference is, is that they were compromised in that sense. And weight cut into a completely different um, issue and topic, and one that, to be quite honest, if it was up to me, there would be no weight cuts. It wouldn't exist. But... That's the, the sport that we live in, in boxing and MMA and in combat sports in general. But then you look at the, again, aftermath of that. They both were down at the same weight. They both made the weight. They both stepped on the sales and then they rehydrated back up. Differences with Michelle Pereira, 
because he didn't make weight, and quite honestly, when he was stood on the scales, didn't look like he'd made that much of a concerted effort to make weight or cut those last two or three pounds, which are massive when you are cutting weight. Um, it's different because the rehydration won't have been as brutal. The weight cut won't have been as brutal on his body. It'll have been fresher going into the cage. It'll have had more energy. It'll have had more durability. So those are the reasons that Wonderboy and Pay potentially turn the fight down. But you know what? I've not heard any interviews or anything from Wonderboy after, so I can't be too sure as to why that happened. But again, I'm just surmising. I appreciate the insight, mate. Thank you. No worries. So the the card opened with with a fight that was a little bit strange for a few reasons, and it's Kevin Holland versus Michael Chiesa. So Michael Chiesa is most famous for, I think he won the Ultimate Fighter at lightweight, had a few fights at lightweight, did okay, lost against Kevin Lee, um, a fighter who retired, I think, fairly recently, or left the UFC fairly recently, um, after the uh, don't talk about my mom at the press conference shit that was a little bit embarrassing, a little bit forced Conor McGregor drama, if that makes sense. Um, and he fought against somebody that, that, that doesn't need that false, forced drama in Kevin Holland. Uh, or Big Mouth, as Dana White calls him, came off of Dana White's Contender Series, I believe, um, and they were fighting in the the welterweight opener of the card. And two fighters that, if they do get to the pinnacle and the summit of the welterweight division, are probably a little bit limited, and and the chances are they're probably more like gatekeepers to that division more than anything else. But again, really entertaining fighters. Kevin Holland's always entertaining when he fights and when he talks. And Marco Chiesa, again, a very, very um, capable fighter himself coming off a two-year layoff as well. So, uh, yeah, it, it would be interesting to see him back in the cage, and it certainly was. With Kevin Holland defeating Michael Chiesa in the very first round, um, basically by a darce choke. I know it says online, bravo choke, but but it was essentially a darce, something that Michael Chiesa has been caught with many, many times in his career, and actually before the fight said, oh, um, I don't want to get caught with a darce choke, and he actually did. So spoke that one into existence, uh, Michael. But a really good win for Kevin. Hopefully this moves him into kind of the upper echelons of the division, maybe top 10, um, but but we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, Kevin Holland's wrestling base is quite poor. Um, I know he has been working on it in the past few months, uh, but yeah, he's come unstuck against wrestlers before. Um, and again, Hamza Shemaev, to give you a perfect example, um, and probably would again. So Kevin Holland, really good win to get himself back on the on the, on the the hype train. Get, you know, he's 30 years old, he's got plenty of time left in the tank. Um, so we're going to see uh, how that one goes and hopefully Kevin Holland, like I say, with the personality of is, can get himself back up to the upper echelon so get himself to the upper echelon to the welterweight division. The next fight was a little bit difficult to watch in all honesty. It was Bobby Green against Tony Ferguson. Tony Ferguson, the former interim lightweight champion of the world, former 11 fight win streak, former um, foil to Habib Namagamedov in his prime, or so we all thought, um, was defeated in the last six seconds of the very final round by, by mean Bobby Green. I don't know if that's his nickname, but it was mean to me on the night. Um, Tony Ferguson, something of a legend. It, it is one of them where I can imagine it's similar to probably Muhammad Ali, not in terms of quality, but in terms of you should have retired six fights ago. Um, and, and Tony Ferguson lives to fight another day, but how long he will live to fight another day is something that worries MMA fans all over the world. Certified legend, an absolutely unbelievable fighter, El Kakui, Tony Ferguson, a legend in the UFC, and I'm sure he'll go into the UFC Hall of Fame. But it is now getting to the point where I think that was his sixth or seventh defeat on the spin. Um, a submission, he went out cold. Tony Ferguson never taps. It was an arm triangle, last six seconds of the fight. Bobby Green's really not known for his submission expertise and his specialist, uh, more known as a, a stand-up fighter. 
and managed to submit Tony Ferguson, which tells you where, you know, the submission expert that Tony Ferguson was back in the day, it sort of tells you where he is in his career now. Again, four minutes and 54 seconds of the final round. It didn't really have anything left. He, he looked... He looked old, he looked slow, he looked like he didn't really have any ideas. Um, he was talking before the fight about five fights and a title. I'm not quite sure what he's talking about there. Maybe he's talking about five defeats in the UFC and then maybe a, a, a title fight in, you know, bare-knuckle boxing or something like that. But for me, I'm a combat sports fan, I'm a UFC fan, I'm a fan of legacy and I'm a fan of the, the legendary fighters. Um, and Tony Ferguson, I think it is now best time that he does retire. I'm sure a lot of people do think the same, but Tony Ferguson, the type of guy he is, came out after the fight and said, I got eye poked. It 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 ruined me and I'd have beat him if it weren't for that. So maybe in denial a little bit, I'm not sure, but all the best to Tony Ferguson and I hope he does make the right decision for his family and, uh, and for everybody involved. The next fight literally knocked my socks off at the time. I, I could not believe what I was seeing. Derek Lewis didn't even know what he was doing in there as well. Um, Dawson, you've probably seen this. Yeah, you're doing the cross chops on camera. I honestly nearly cried with laughter when I saw Derek Lewis do that. When I saw him do the interview, and I saw him take his shorts off and swing them round his head, that guy is Amazing. a fucking maverick and an absolute legend of the game. Um, 33 seconds into the fight, stops Marcos Rodrigo de Lima um, by punches. But it was the first five or six seconds of the fight when Derek Lewis charged across the cage, landed a Jorge Masvidal-esque flying knee uh, and dropped De Lima to the, to the canvas um, and followed it up by a flurry of punches and then ended this fight by, by taking his shorts off, doing the cross chop, frying his shorts over his head and running around the cage like an absolute madman. Um, and then after, with his interview with Joe Rogan saying, I just thought I'd throw some shit and it, and it worked. So, yeah, uh, didn't yeah, plan it. Probably, yeah, probably Ronda Rousey was watching. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Where's Ronda Rousey's fine ass at? But, yeah, no, he, uh, <laughs> he surprised us all with that one, and I think he surprised himself with that Did you see the interview one. before the fight? Did you before see the, the interview in the press? Uh, I don't think it was directly before the fight, but in the weekend, someone said that they'd spoke to Ronda Rousey, and he was like, oh, was she asking about me? Like, proper, <laughs> genuine, proper genuine and innocent as well. Oh. He was like, oh, was, was, she asking, was she asking about me? And they were like, no, and he was like, oh, it's okay. Derek Lewis is a fucking treasure. Yeah, um, it, it, crazy. Like, his interviews after the fight are legendary. Uh, Derek, why'd you take your shorts off? My balls was hot. He, he had another fantastic one this weekend as well. Uh, my dickhead got sweaty or something like that. Um, yeah, Derek Lewis is an absolute legend of the game. And, and six seconds in, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Nobody could believe what they were seeing. I don't think Derek Lewis could believe what he was seeing. Landed a head kick. And in Derek Lewis's own words, I just thought I'd throw some shit and see if it landed. And shit, it did. So that gives you an idea as to the mindset going into the fight. But Derek Lewis, an absolute national treasure and a hero. And if he could win the UFC heavyweight championship belt before the end of his uh, end of his career, I'm sure it would be legendary, although very far-fetched. But Derek Lewis gets himself back in the win column. I believe he is now the record holder for most knockouts in UFC history. And I'm sure he will go down, like Tony Ferguson before him, in the UFC Hall of Fame. Um, but right now, as he says, um, he's going to bust some guts at home in his wife. So, uh, yeah, well done, Derek Lewis. And uh, I'm quoting you directly there, so you can't sue me. Um, light heavyweight next. Uh, as I say, Dawson, as I mentioned earlier, Alex Pereira uh, defeating the former champion Jan Blachowicz by split decision. And this was a close split decision. Um, Jan Blachowicz should have done more. It's as simple as that. 
Alex Pereira is a former world champion in kickboxing, has knocked out Israel Adesanya twice and beat him on points once in, in kickboxing and MMA. Adesanya is usually considered the best striker in mixed martial arts. And like I say, uh, Alex Pereira has knocked him out numerous times. So you can sort of see where the quality level is there in terms of his striking. But wow, Jan Blachowicz had him down, took him down, took his back, controlled him for four minutes in the first round. Everybody and their mum was singing and screaming, Jan, you've got to finish him. He's got no submission defence. He's got no takedown defence. He's literally a striker. You're on his back. How are you not finishing him? And he didn't finish him. And he paid the price. It got to the end of the round. Alex Pereira kept it on the feet, mostly from there, landed some clean strikes. Jan landed some clean strikes as well. Um, but it was extremely, extremely close. It wasn't the most interesting and entertaining of fights. But again, Alex Pereira did get his hand raised, did get the win. And I think he'll be going on to fight uh, for the uh, the 205 title, um, probably against Yuri Prohaska next, which is going to be a very, very interesting fight. And I can tell you for free, if Yuri Prohaska gets you in that same position, you're not surviving it. So Alex Pereira's got definitely got to do some homework before he goes into that next fight. But Yuri is also the type of guy that says, former kickboxing world champion, let's keep it on the feet. So who knows what's going to happen in that next fight, but we will be there for it. As always, the main event, Dawson, I'm going to bring you in here. I imagine you've seen the finish. I don't know if you have. You've not got your headphones on, so it's fine. You're not listening to me. It's all good. Adam, you've definitely not seen the finish, so I'm not going to come to you, mate. But there you go. Dawson's got his headphone back on now. He's going to listen to while I'm talking to him. Dawson, Justin Gaethje versus Dustin Poirier. Tell me you saw the finish. Tell me you saw the finish. Uh, I saw the finish, yes. Wow. Salt Lake City one year ago. What 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 happened? Can you remember one one year ago? Justin Gaethje's you. good. Justin Gaethje's teammate Kamara Usman got head kicked in Salt Lake City in the main event to lose a title. Now Justin Gaethje, Kamara Usman's teammate, head kicks somebody to win a title, albeit a symbolic title, a BMF title, to but wins a title nonetheless. And and it lived up to billing. Justin Justin Gaethje versus Dustin Poirier. I say it all the time. Donkeys. They are both the most lovable donkeys in the world. Um, you see them at Blackpool Beach, and they just make you smile. They, they, they absolutely went went to war from the first minute, and we all loved it as we always do. Um, don't think I've ever seen Justin Gaethje throw a head kick. Don't think I ever will again. For some reason, one minute in the second round, he decided to throw a fake right hand and a head kick behind it just like Leon Edwards did to Kamara Usman to win the belt a year ago in the exact same arena, in the exact same main event. And, and it was the same result. Dustin Poirier was on his back. He was knocked out cold. He was done. Justin Gaethje did more damage to Dustin Poirier in that head kick than Dustin Poirier's hot sauce did to my ass because we had some Dustin Poirier hot sauce with our Domino's pizza the other night. So, unbelievable. Justin Gaethje's the new BMF championship title holder. Um, goes on to potentially fight the winner of Islam Makachev versus Charles Oliveira for the 155 title and maybe avenging that defeat against uh, Islam Makachev's uh, long-time teammate Habib Nurmagomedov to win the undisputed title. Dawson, what are your thoughts on this BMF symbolic belt? I don't know if you know too much about it. The Rock brought it out with him to the Jorge Masvidal make Diaz fight, if you remember. Yeah. But then Jorge Masvidal pretty much lost every other fight he had in the UFC after that fight. And they didn't lose the belt. It's a symbolic thing. It happens once between two fighters. And then if that fighter loses, it almost seems as though he sticks with him until he retires sort of thing. And then they'll probably bring it out again. So 
it's a symbolic belt more than anything. It's a gesture. It's not something to be defended. It's not something that your career will be sort of legacy on. You can't call him a former world champion. Do you think there's a place for that sort of thing in combat sports in general, or do you think it's a bit of a gimmick that that fight actually didn't need? Um, I think it's a little bit of a, of both, to be honest, because when you were talking then, I was literally thinking it's a bit of a gimmick, but I don't, I wouldn't say that's necessarily in a, a negative way. Um, I think because it's respected by the fighters, I think that gives it credit. I think because um, Gaethje and, and Puri had such respect for each other, you know, the, the post-match interviews in the press sort of conference were, were fantastic. And I think that gives it credence and and yeah, it gives it credit that sometimes you wouldn't get with that kind of belt because it's not a recognised UFC belt. So I definitely think it's got its place. It doesn't take over. I think, look, that fight was in the main event and it was a great fight to watch with a memorable finish. So they they clearly put everything into wanting that belt and, and winning the fight. So if the fighters are buying into it and they're giving it credit and the respect, you know, I think as fans, you, you've got to do the same really, because it's not like they've just got absolute joke fighters fighting for it, or it's, you know, it's idiots that wouldn't normally get a place on the card of fighting for it. And the only reason the belt's there is to get people that wouldn't normally get on the card, a, a spot on the card. So yeah, it is a bit of a gimmick. Of course it is. You can't argue with that, but I, I certainly wouldn't, um, I certainly wouldn't, say that that's a negative thing I do, I do think it's got its place and as you as a USC fan that's watching the fights do you agree with that or have you got a different opinion the fight didn't need it the fight didn't need it the fight sells itself anyway it's a symbolic gesture it's it's a recognition I think of you two guys leave it all out there every single time you fight you go for it you're probably not the best technical fighters in the world but my god you know you, you're unbelievable my point on it is is you don't see GSP or Habib fighting for a BMF belt um I think the upper echelons and the best of the best are too technical to get into those type of wars, if that makes sense. They're too, you know, smart to to, to be recognised as the BMF, essentially, because, you know, a BMF is a bad motherfucker. Somebody gets hit, weathers the storm. Stand and, then, and swing. Yeah, and then finishes somebody, you know, stand and bang, exactly that. Um, but, uh, but, but, yeah, it's symbolic. It has its place. I understand it. Congratulations to Justin Gaethje. I'm sure it's going to look good on his wall. Um, but but yeah, the fight didn't need it and, and it wouldn't really bother me that much if it wasn't there. But it is, um, and it's a little quirk that you could add to the UFC instead of just sort of the standard titles across all the divisions. But you're talking about bad motherfuckers. Let's let's transition from an unbelievable weekend of fights. And, to Adam Marsden. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to get it in there quick before it went too long. Bad, bad hair motherfuckers um, coming from me. Yeah, it, it it was a fantastic weekend of fights. Uh, you have bad hair if you have no hair? Well, that's why Adam's bad hair, motherfucker, and I'm not. Well, coming from me, anything about hair is an insult, right? Surely. I think I think you look well, mate, to be fair, so carry on. There you go, then. Um, but yeah, again, an unbelievable weekend of fights. We saw the upper echelons of boxing and Terence Crawford really stand out from the crowd as the pound-for-pound pound number one fighter in the world, in my opinion. Uh, a, a fantastically entertaining UFC card, which we didn't expect anything last with Derek Lewis, Justin Gaethje, Daniel, Dustin Poirier, um, Bobby Green, and Tony Ferguson, Kevin Holland, and Marco Chiesa. It was it was stacked from top to bottom, and we really really enjoyed it. Um, we now move on to another BMF, another bad motherfucker who actually fought Jorge Masvidal for the first BMF title back in 2019. Nate Diaz um, takes on Jake Paul this weekend in a crossover boxing match, I believe. 
I must admit, I've not done that much research and, and prior knowledge into it, but I think it's worth a mention. Um, again, this YouTuber boxing, this this kind of thing has taken over and, and, and sort of landed in the mainstream over the past few years. I must admit, this is not really one that's um, caught my imagination. I think Nate Diaz is a legend of the sport, a legend of the game, and I think if he can weather Jake Paul's storm, and if he can weather the shots that he he he's going to land in the first few rounds, then he might gas Jake Paul out because his gas tank's like nothing I've I've ever seen. You know, he don't warm up until fourth or fifth round in MMA, so probably won't warm up until seventh round or eighth round in boxing. But there you go. Um, but yeah, it's just um, he doesn't seem to be promoted that well. Doesn't seem to be that well sponsored and and publicized, I guess. But nonetheless, it will be an interesting prospect, I suppose, in some people's eyes. But in mine, I must admit, I had a late weekend this last weekend, so I will be watching it probably in the morning um, after everybody's uh, fawned over it the night before or, or, or whatever happened has, has happened the night before. I'm going to go with Jake Paul on this one. Nate Diaz is striking while it is a whirlwind and it's non-stop and it's progressive in MMA. In boxing, it's a very, very different thing. It's Queensbury rules. It's literally just hands. Nate Diaz is a black belt in jiu-jitsu. He's got you know fantastic ground game. He's, he's, his hands are great. His endurance is fantastic, but I don't think that's going to be quite enough. And I don't think Jake Paul will knock him out, but I think Jake Paul could catch him with a really big shot, stumble him. Referee could be really eager to wave it off. Another thing that concerns me as well is the thing that stopped the BMF fight between Jorge Masvidal and Nate Diaz in that Nate Diaz, because he's took so much punishment and had so many fights over the years, he's got scar tissue all over his face. So as soon as sort of anything happens to Nate Diaz, if he gets a, a, a big blow to the face, he will start bleeding instantly. It's just something that happens every single time. And the scar tissue is that intense that it just takes nothing to make Nate Diaz bleed. Um, Ric Flair's ideal uh, opponent, you know, blade Nate Diaz, no problem. But I think that's going to be a downfall. And I think Jake Paul will probably catch him with a couple of clean shots. I think Nate Diaz will bleed. Uh, I think the blood will be running into his eye. Nate Diaz will absolutely want to continue fighting. But I think, unfortunately, the referees or whoever's doing it won't know Nate Diaz, won't know that that's something that he's had to contend with before. They'll treat him like every other fighter, and there's merits to that as well. But I think they'll stop the fight, and I think it will be all over. I think fairly early on as well. I did say third round earlier in, in the chat. I think I'm going to probably say fourth or fifth round, Jake Paul gets a stoppage win. Interesting. And and I'll be honest, I, I know we, we briefly spoke on the fight when it very first was announced, and... And, you know, I took it as oh, Nate Diaz is going to win in a similar fashion to what uh, what uh, Tommy Fury beat Jake Paul with. You know, he is the experience, the fighter. He is the full-time fighter. Um, but today, after, in, in our work teams chat, someone asked what they thought the, the outcome would be. And I asked in the chat a couple of you lads as well. And everyone said Jake Paul. I said Diaz on points. But, yeah, it's, it's quite surprising that um, I know, of course, Diaz is background is MMA and not straight up boxing but yeah I'm quite surprised to hear that, that literally everyone that I've spoken to about it today is, is back in Jake Paul but is it a fight that I, I, want, I want to say excited for because for lack of a better word at this point sure that you'll not be as excited but I suppose intrigued are you intrigued by this fight are you excited by this fight like you said you're going to watch it after the fact but you know where, where do you sort of stand on, on what a kind of fight this could give to you, or is it a bit like the zoo and it's just you know caged animals and you're watching crash. it? It's a car crash. It's a car yeah. crash. I'm watching it. I, I don't really want to watch it. I don't really want to see it. I've no interest in seeing it. I won't pay for it. 
um, peek behind the curtain there. Don't be listening to me, whoever you are doing the pay-per-view. Um, but I I absolutely would never stream anything in my life. I always pay for every pay-per-view I watch. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to watch it because I want to see the carnage. I want to see what happens. But actually, am I interested, really? Am I going to get any gratification no matter what happens? If Nate Diaz wins, it'll be pr- quite funny. <laughs> Takes him to the floor and puts him in a rear. No, no, that, that we're talking. That was, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. Now, in all seriousness, again, it's it's a car crash. I'll watch it. I won't be that interested. We'll see what happens, but I'll be watching it with a coffee on Sunday morning rather than watching it. Four Red Bulls, 13 packets of Haribo and four bottles of Dustin Poirier's hot sauce later, where I don't know whether to cry or shit through Naira Needle. So, uh, yeah, or both at the same time. I'll be in a much better position when I'm watching this fight than I was uh, on Saturday night, but there you go. Nice little bacon butty with your feet up sounds. uh, Sounds very sensible of you, uh, but we'll see. But, Kemp, is that everything for Kempy's Combat Corner this week, or is there anything else that you want to close off on before we get stuck into the rest of the business? That's it for Kempi's Combat Corner this week. Like I said, an unbelievable weekend of fights, and this is why we love the fight game. Here we go, baby. Let's uh, move on to the next one. Let's go. And Kempi's uh, Kempi's Combat Corner will be back next week in episode 62. Uh, Just a very quick note. I'm not going to get into it and sort of open up for discussion, but the Ashes has uh, finished. It was still ongoing at the time of starting recording, but England got that final wicket and won the fifth test by 49 runs, meaning the series ended 2-2. Um, and with it being a draw, Australia retained. We spoke enough last week about our thoughts on that and the disappointment of how the fourth test ended. You, you've got to assume that England were going to go on to win that test based on where it was at, at the time. And England win that. Stuart Broad getting the last wicket in his last ever cricket game. He announced a couple of days ago, at the end of, I think it was the end of day three, that he was to retire from the game of cricket after this series. So, as great as a moment that, that was that he got that final wicket in his last game, as great as a re- of a reaction from the crowd that it was when he took that wicket, for me, if that fourth test had ended and England had got that win and then England have won this fifth test in the exact same fashion with Broad taking that final wicket, it genuinely would have gone down as not only an all-time moment in cricket, but an all-time moment in sport. And unfortunately, we've had that taken away from us. But credit to Stuart Broad, what a career. Some highs, eight for 15 against Sri Lanka, phenomenal. Some lows, getting hit for six sixes against India in one-day cricket many moons ago as well. But, uh, yeah, a career that will be uh, remembered for a lifetime and more with, with what he's done for England. So, uh, happy retirement to uh, Stuart Broad. And uh, we'll end cricket on that for what will probably be quite a while. But I've enjoyed it. Just disappointed at the the way that it did last week in the fourth test. So, Final sport to discuss this week before we uh, break off and uh, fans can have a little bit of a rest ready for the bumper football episode later in the week. And Aggie, I'm going to come to you for this one, mate. It is Formula One. Belgian Grand Prix this week and taking place. Um, Unfortunately, we did get the usual, despite Max getting a five-place grid penalty and having to start in six. But uh, talk us through the race and then we'll get stuck into what we think might happen or could happen on the other side of the summer break. Yeah, he was pretty much cruising again, wasn't he? He started uh, a little bit further down than what everyone expected due to his penalty. But again, it took him, what, 22 laps to get himself back into first place. And he even won the race ahead of his teammate by nearly half a minute. So another dominant performance from Max Verstappen. Uh, Red Bull did get a 1-2 in the race. Checo finishing in second place means it is 12 out of 12 for Red Bull. 
throughout the season. They are now 13 in a row, if you take it on to what happened last season as well. So it's just dominance from Red Bull once again. It was nice to see different names appear up quite high, including Charles Leclerc, who got third place and took the bottom step of the podium. He's not been there for quite a while, so it's good to see a bit of a revamp from Ferrari working in their favour. What didn't happen is Carlos signs on the first corner, taking out Oscar Piastri. An excellent performance in qualifying, uh, matched in the sprint race by Piastri. Of course, McLaren, since they've had them upgrades, has been a completely different entity. And on the first corner, he got uh, pushed into the wall by signs, and it caused him uh, out of the race immediately. Signs later on, I think it was about 23 laps he managed before that damage that he'd sustained from that crash meant that he had to retire from the race as well. So only one Ferrari and only one McLaren managed to finish the race. Lando Norris uh, did finish in seventh place for the McLaren. So a bit of a step back from what they've had so far since the upgrades came into effect. But we've got the summer break. We've got multiple teams now looking at their cars. Mercedes, Ferrari, we expect them to come back with much better uh, cars than what they've left with. But even with Leclerc in third and Hamilton in fourth, I think George Russell went on to a one-stop strategy and finished in sixth place as well. So the Mercedes are starting to show what they're about again. It's just at the moment, nobody can compete with that car that Max Verstappen's got. And I heard loads of different comments about what happened on the radio. He was making comments towards his own engineer over what strategy, when he should push, when he shouldn't, when he should try and get the fastest lap. And that's been happening for a couple of weeks now. But the guy's confident, he's calm, he knows what he can do with that car. And his performances have just been out of this world. And he's been making that clear to his engineer as well, that he's comfortable in that car and he knows when he can push. And the engineers have been trying to get him to ease off a little bit because one little incident in most of these tracks, Belgium is one of those, especially in Eau Rouge. We spoke about that last week. It could really end your race, just one little incident like that. And they're worried about that happening for Max Verstappen because that could be the start of a downward spiral. Opens the door for Perez, opens the door for other drivers to try and push. And whilst you've got Mercedes and McLaren starting to improve their cars, whilst they are still somewhat off Red Bull, all it takes is those little uh, knocks and, and disappearances from top spot. And you could be looking at a bit more of a competitive race uh, and competition in the second half of the season. But yes, the next race is the 25th of August in the Netherlands. It is race 13 of the season. It is four weeks away, which means we've got a nice little break to prepare ourselves for Max Verstappen winning races. Max Verstappen winning race again. Uh, the race in the, the Netherlands will take place on Sunday, the 27th of August. It's a 2 p.m. race time. Aggie will be in London that day at Wembley Stadium. Uh, me and Kemp will be at a bar somewhere as uh, Sheffield United versus Manchester City will be kicking off on Sunday, the 27th of August at 2pm. So we'll be watching that. Um, maybe you'll watch it on your phone somewhere. Maybe you'll come and join us for a pint and uh, and watch the game with us. Who's, uh, who, who knows? But yeah, like I say, four-week break now. Uh, Netherlands, Italy and Singapore are the first three races off the back of the uh, the summer break. Uh, one thing I did see at the start of the season when the news first came out about Red Bull sort of breaching the new rules, financial rules that had come in, and people were saying, you know, it's not affecting them, the punishment's not strong enough because they're still dominating, all those kind of things. And I saw someone, they went quite in-depth, but basically the top line was is that we'll not really see the punishment until the second half of the season. Why that was, I, I can't remember, like I said, it was, it was a few months ago now. But do you think... I know you joke there about four weeks until we start seeing Max winning, but the advances that McLaren have made, Mercedes have certainly been better over the last couple of weeks. Fernando seemed to have a bit of a better performance this weekend after dropping off from his early season form. Could we see a bit more of a competitive second half of the season if that you know if that report is true that we'll we'll see the effects of that punishment come into effect after the summer and with other teams around and improving over the last few weeks. 
is there things to be excited in the second half of the season as an F1 fan? Or is this season, look, Max is going to win. Red Bull are going to win the, the constructors. But in terms of individual races, is there hope that we could have a, a more competitive second half of the season? Um, I don't think there's going to be hope that it's going to be that competitive in the second half of the season. I think it's, in my mind, a foregone conclusion that Max is going to win this. Just to put it into perspective, I'm just looking at the standings now. He's on 314 points. Second place is Perez on 189. Then you've got Alonso on 149. Alonso is third place, and he's not appeared on the podium for the last four weeks. So it just shows how far ahead he was at the time that his downfall started. And then you've got other drivers still performing like Max and like Perez. Uh, performing very confidently at the top. So I think no matter what happens with other cars' upgrades, Max will still stay ahead, stay dominant in the second half of this season. I think it was more that when they breached those, Red Bull had already got a very strong car and they didn't need to worry about updating their car this season. So I think it goes back to the point that Lewis Hamilton made of you need to set a deadline of when cars, uh, teams can start working on their cars for the next season because Red Bull have already got an extremely competitive car this season. It's head and shoulders above everybody else. So they can already look at next season. So they think that the second half of the season is going to be where all teams have worked on theirs. They've, they've got these performances back up to scratch and can be competitive with Red Bull. And Red Bull haven't changed theirs at all. They're already focusing on next year. So people have had that chance to catch up. I don't think it's going can to happen. I, can I just chuck a very quick counter-argument there? Course, you yeah. say that Red Bull, Red Bull can get started because they're so competitive. On the flip side of that, could teams not get started early because they think, oh, Red Bull are miles ahead. You know, we've no hope of winning the title or the constructors. Let's get started early so we're ready to be a bit more competitive next year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what some teams look at from that is the finances. I mean, not everybody's got the money that Red Bull have got, so they've not got that money to be able to spend on building their car and preparing the car for next season. And obviously, Red Bull have already gone above what they were allowed to spend, and that's that's been penalised in however the FIA thought it was, it was suitable. So, yeah, people can start whenever they want, but the amount of money that you get between finishing second in the Constructors' Championship, third, fourth, etc., is such a huge amount that why would you stop focusing on this year's car? If you've got a realistic chance of finishing higher up in the Constructors, albeit not first... Why wouldn't you put that effort in to make sure that you've got more money to back your car for next season? This summer little break is where you'll see the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari with their experience really take the cars to the next level. McLaren have done that over the last couple of weeks and we've seen massive improvements from both Piastri and Lando Norris on the track. So I think with this little break, McLaren will go back to working on it. And when it comes back, we'll see probably a little bit more of a three-horse race between Ferrari, Mercedes and McLaren for, you know, third and fourth on the grid. I think... Whatever Red Bull have done, whether it's part of the financial breach or not, is unbelievable. To to get a car that is that far ahead and to have somebody like Max Verstappen doing that for them, I say it a lot, a, a lot of it's got to come down to driver talent because if the car is that good, why is Perez not also 22 seconds ahead of third place? So Max has beat Checo by 22 seconds. Checo hasn't qualified for you know the, the shootout session for, what is it now, three, four weeks? He's been struggling. So I think a lot of it's got to come down to driver talent and you've got to give a, lot of, give a lot of that credit to Max Verstappen. I know I don't like Lewis Hamilton, but I've given him a lot of credit over the years for how he's performed in that Mercedes car. So I think a lot of it's got to go down to driver talent as well. Yeah, of course. And look, we can all speculate and, and give theories on what we think could happen to make the sport more even, but it's not just a case of chuck them in a car. The car is the car based on the work. It's it's measured to the driver. So it's not as, e as easy as that with the amount of money that goes into building one car. 
let alone you know 22 others to as a special event. So it's tough. I'm hoping for a com- more competitive second half of the season. I think McLaren are going to have massive hope and excitement going into that with the, the improvement over the last few weeks. And certainly looks like they're there to stay now. I know the big question I asked you off the back of that first race where they were pushing for podium was, was it a one-off or is there hope for them for the rest of the season? And, and it seems like your answer of no, it, it seems like they've turned a corner is absolutely right. So really good to see. It's just a shame that we're not seeing that competitiveness for that third spot. It's second to fifth, sixth, really, at the moment, which is fine. But ultimately, when you know who's going to win and who's going to win the championship, it kind of takes the shine off of everything else that's going on the track, which is what it is. But we'll be back in four weeks to, to discuss our thoughts on the, on the Netherlands, maybe news between now and then on, on where teams have done and all that kind of stuff. Maybe a, a driver change or two. Look, this is the time of year where... We, we tend to see a couple of driver changes, so you never know. The the 22 drivers that were on track, or, or the 20 drivers, sorry, that were on track um, this past weekend might not be the same drivers that uh, are, are setting up in the Netherlands. So it'd be interesting to see if there are any changes between now and then. But uh, is there anyone, I've not seen any reports, but have you seen any sort of reports or rumours or who could potentially uh, be at threat of losing their seat, or does it look quite comfortable for everyone as it stands? I think it looks quite comfortable for everyone. It's, it's always tough when you've got somebody that's so far ahead like Red Bull are to really look at your car and think we are so far behind certain teams and we should be performing much better. You've got your likes of Haas that have really improved over the last year or so. Williams have been doing the exact same. I think they're fighting for points on a more than regular basis at the moment. So you've got them sort of teams that are, are starting to pick up little bits. I think the decision to bring in Ricardo was, I think, quite a knee-jerk one. But at the same time, I'm I'm behind it because I like Daniel Ricardo and I think he's a great person to have on the grid and he's been badly missed over these last uh, the, the season so far. So I think we're looking at the same lineup when it comes in, but who knows? We've got four weeks where anything can happen off track. Any, any decisions can be made. And, you know, the only two people that I thought was set to be without a seat, both have a seat now, and that's Daniel Ricciardo and Nico Hulkenberg. So they're both on, on the track at the moment. So I'm not going to argue with that. No, no reason to argue with that either. I've said it every time he's come up, but the sport is better for having Daniel Ricciardo on the grid. So uh, I'm fully with you there. Um, that's everything. Is there is there anything that you do, a bold prediction maybe, or anything that you thought you want to stick your name to as a prediction for the second half of the season? Or are you Mr. Glum like me of nothing's going to change? So what's the point? I'm going to say McLaren take second. I think we finished the best of the rest. I think with the upgrades that, is that we've made. for the whole season or is mm. that from the return up until the end? Yeah, from from the entire season, I think we finished second overall. I think Red Bull are too far ahead, but why not? With the upgrades that we've made, we've started to close that gap on Mercedes and Aston Martin. I think we could finish second. Very bold prediction indeed. Kemp, do you want to put your name to anything when it comes oh, to the God. Formula One world, mate? You've got a grin on your face, so what have you prepped for us? Nigel Mansell to return and win the Drivers' Championship. I'm feeling it. I've got a moustache on its way for August for different reasons. But the man with the moustache, Nigel Mansell, will return to F1, the brummy hero himself, and defy all, beat all the odds from undesirable to undeniable. Well, I'll tell you what, mate. Normally, we'd go to Skybet uh, Skybet for for one of those, but I'll give you a million to one myself for that one. So if you want to stick a quid on it, mate, I'll I'll somehow find a way to pay out. If somehow that comes in. (laughs) It's indeed. You spoke about the moustache there, mate, and we spoke about it in four weeks' time, speaking about F1 again. Can't wait to see what uh, that moustache is looking like in four weeks, ready for Wembley, but we'll get stuck into that at the time. But, lads, that's everything for episode 60, a nice quick one. 
um, of any other and every other bit of business before we get stuck into football. I'm really excited for episode 61. Can't wait to hear what your predictions are for the season, both predictable predictions and bold ones too. And Kemp, I'm really looking forward to hearing what that little uh, bold prediction for Manchester United you've got planned. But if you want to hear what that is, tune in to episode 61, which will be out on the usual day of Friday. And until then, good speaking to you, lads. Have a good week. Peace.